0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales,
4: And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Brooklyn, New York, for a very particular reason. Not just to be in Brooklyn, but we're actually on the Queen Mary II as it prepares to set sail to celebrate the 75th anniversary of D-Day, June 6, 1944, in Normandy. So much to talk about, and let's start with the person who knows more about the ship than anybody else, the captain, Captain Asim Hashmi. Welcome, sir.
5: Thank you, Peter. Good to see you.
0: You know, in, in researching your history, I found it fascinating because, remember, I'm I'm the travel editor for CBS News. I cover travel. You didn't start in the maritime industry. You tried to get hired at British Air.
5: That's right. I started off uh, in aviation with British Airways and then with cutbacks in the early 90s. uh, By the way,
0: that's what the aviation industry is known for, cutbacks. Cutbacks, (laughs)
5: cutbacks, cutbacks, cutbacks. It was basically last in... First out, and then pilots had to become cabin crew. And after that, it's hard worker's cabin crew saying, chicken and beef, chicken and beef down the aisle. (laughs) uh, Did you do that? I did that. And then it was three more years indefinitely they wanted. And that's when I did a career change. And I applied to Cunard Line. And first time, second time, third time, lucky.
0: And then basically, you really, you literally worked your way from the ground up because you started as a cadet cadet.
5: That's right. I had to start again as a cadet. And I remember my first job on the Queen Elizabeth II, the QB two. I thought I would go straight to the bridge and drive the ship out. But no, it was cleaning <laughs> the fluff from the drying machines in the crew laundrette.
0: And then you had to go through all those courses to certify you and qualify you to move up the ladder.
5: That's right. It's about a three-year cadetship at the Naval College, sea college, sea college, and then to get your first basic navigation license.
0: Although you did say chicken or beef very well. I d- you did say it very nicely.
5: Yes, it, I think it prepares you for life. Uh, it does, does The customer it? service element of it. It uh, does. Even as captain now, yes, the navigation is your prime responsibility, but a big responsibility also the customer care for our guests on board.
0: This ship has a particular history. Of course, it's got a partic- particular pedigree, um, Uh, In terms of of Cunard in World War II, uh, all the Cunard ships that were there, which is amazing how many ships went into service during the war that were ocean liners, many of which were sunk.
5: That's right. Um, Of course, the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth were the famous ones that transported all the North American troops over to Europe and took the GIs and the brides back after the war. And even Winston Churchill said that probably the two queens probably shortened the war by one year. By transporting all the Allied troops.
0: And Winston Churchill was on the Queen Mary, I believe, four times. That's correct, yes. right. And on one of his trips, in one of the lower decks, there were 5,000 German prisoners of war.
5: 5,000, 5, and also the biggest carry of humans at sea was on the Queen Mary with 16,000 soldiers on board.
0: Unreal. I mean, yeah. they were stacked.
5: They were stacked. <laughs> they were really stacked. Yeah, it was like a tin of sardines.
0: It yeah. was. But this ship, I was on the on the inaugural cruise of this ship back in 2004, the Queen Mary 2, and it still ranks, unless I'm wrong, as the largest ocean liner currently floating.
5: That's correct. We're just over 1,100 feet long and 200 feet high, and that makes us uh, the only scheduled liner across the Atlantic.
0: And, of course, for those of us old enough to remember what a liner is... Uh, We're not talking about a cruise ship. We're talking about a crossing.
5: We're talking about crossing, and we have to keep the schedule come what may. We can't just miss ports out. Uh, Southampton, New York, New York, Southampton, just like the old days, just like the airlines run on a schedule, we run on a schedule. But this ship's made for crossing the Atlantic come what may weather-wise or any elements.
0: You know, the days that I miss were the days, speaking of British Airways, where you could sail the QE2 over and take the Concorde back.
5: That's right. Cunard had a special relationship with uh, British Airways Concorde. And they actually said that uh, Concorde dictated the worldwide price of smoked salmon because they were the biggest consumers. And QE2 dictated the worldwide price of caviar because the QE2 was the biggest consumer outside of Russia.
0: Now, when you were on the QE2, you did a crossing with the Concorde right overhead, didn't you?
5: That's right. It was and in-
0: I remember, by the way, uh, when I was on the ship... The captain would actually come on with a loudspeaker announcement saying, you're about to hear an explosion. It's not the ship. It's the Concorde. And if you it was never, the sonic
5: boom. Absolutely. If you've never heard the sonic boom before, it does startle you. It's a double bang as the Concorde flies over you. And when you hear the sonic boom, Concorde already 80 miles past you at 60,000 feet. Because that's
0: how fast it's covering the ground. Yeah. What's the biggest challenge you have on this ship?
5: The biggest challenge? I think our training is that you don't face those challenges. In the first place,
0: well, that's a politically correct answer, but, but I mean, literally, I mean, you've got twenty five hundred passengers, more than a thousand crew. I mean that in itself is management ca- is a challenge.
5: It is, and a former senior captain in Cunard Line who trained me when I was a junior officer, Commodore Warwick, who was the first master oh, of this ship.
0: That's who I was with on the inaugural, and the inaugural cruise. cruise. And he was very fond of a shirt that I'm very fond of. He loved to wear jams, the Hawaiian that's shirts, right? That's right. And his wife did too,
5: and, and they both still do. Yeah. And he told me when I was a junior officer to be an effective captain, you have to have your finger on the pulse, but not in the pie. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to that. Um, the ship carries on regardless, you know, with all the management you got around you. But as long as you know how it all comes together,
0: but you have to be not only a captain, you have to be an engineer, you have to be a mathematician, you have to be all of these things because you're in charge of all these departments.
5: I think that's a re- very correct. The fun job of the jo- uh, part of the job, the driving part, the maneuvering part, um, is probably only five percent of the job. But the rest of it is you'll be a human resources manager, you're the chief engineer, uh, the hotel manager, customer service manager. But it all comes together nicely. It does. And the Padre uh, on Sundays. Oh, oh, really? Are you performing any services other than that? Yep, uh, Sundays at sea. And one very nice part on the crossing we have now, four weddings. So we have four weddings. Are you officiating? Of Are you I officiating? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Wow. But you can't just meet someone on board and come to me the next day and say, Hey, Captain, <laughs> it, it, does, it does need three months' notice.
0: But they might believe it. <laughs> they might believe it. Indeed. I just came back from a place that maybe you've been, St. Helena.
5: Yes, I have. Yes, absolutely. We James share town. that in
0: common. Very few people can say that.
5: That's right. And I've most people say ships don't make it, but I've probably made it more often than not. And I've seen Napoleon's uh, burial place. Uh, we, down, we did too. James absolutely. Down.
0: They I, I talk about a remote island destination, 1,200 miles east of Angola, 1,800 miles west of Brazil, smack dab in the middle of nowhere in the South Atlantic. If you're going to St. Helena, you have to want to go there.
5: You have to, and they built an airport there a few years back. Oh, I they, know that story. It's not been very successful. No. In fact, the,
0: it, a, speaking of British Airways, the inaugural British Airways flight, the approach was so treacherous that when the pilot landed, said, I'm never doing this again, and they never did. They never came back. No. The only flight now comes out of Johannesburg with a stop in Windhoek once a week, weather permitting, and they get one shot at it because there's no instrument landing system there. It's all VFR.
5: That's right, and it was a third attempt for British Airways to land on the maiden flight as well.
0: I know. <laughs> I wasn't flying. <laughs> <laughs> and you weren't serving chicken or beef you No, wasn't.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
1: We're not in Kansas anymore.
0: Distinguished professor of maritime history at the U.S. Naval War College,
2: Craig Simons. How are you, sir? Hi, Peter. I'm fine, thank you.
0: You know, when I when I talk about Cunard and I talk about history of World War II, one of the stories that comes to mind is one that I've always been fascinated with, and that's the liner Laconia, uh, because that was a ship that was torpedoed. It was it was a beautiful, beautiful cruise actually an ocean liner, if you will, uh, that uh, was one of the pride of the Cunard fleet that was torpedoed by the Germans uh, in World War II. And what's amazing is the story that happened after that because on board that ship were not only British soldiers... British sailors, British doctors and nurses, but also they were transporting many, many, many German prisoners of war. Yeah, that's true. And when it sank, the most remarkable thing happened because when the German U-boat surfaced, To survey, if you will, its spoils of war, they heard all these German voices in the water, and the German U-boat commander realized what had happened. And against all the orders of the German high command, he decided to rescue everybody, the Germans, the Brits, and everybody. And what happened over the next couple of days of unbelievable friendships and and heroism is one of the, the the real untold stories of World War II.
2: It is. The whole idea of the uh, Battle of the Atlantic and and the the new rules of war that were being sort of invented and imposed at the time uh, are a fascinating human interest story. The Laconia in particular is interesting. Actually, the the prisoners on board, most of the prisoners were Italians being carried from the Middle East around Cape Horn and back to Britain uh, for internment as prisoners of war. And the commander of the German U-boat thought, well, here's a nice fat target that he can hit it. And it, It worked and the ship was going down. And as he surfaced, he could hear in the water the cries for help in Italian. Ah. And then he thought to himself, oh, my Lord, what have I done? So it was his decision then to try to rescue as many as he could. But of course, a submarine is a very small vessel. He couldn't take many on board. He took some on board, pulled them literally from the water. In other cases, he strung their lifeboats together, almost like a child's pull toy, and tried to tow them to safety. But even more than that, that, he went on the radio. And, uh, and reported his position. And he reported, reported his position, which, of yes. course, is a very risky thing to do. He notified the British that he would do all he could to rescue them if they would leave him alone. The British might have been willing to agree to that, but the Americans apparently were not. He was attacked by American airplanes out of the Azores, uh, had to cut loose the boats he was towing and dive for his own safety. And then even in Berlin, where where uh, his commander, Carl Dunitz, Admiral Dunitz, heard him make that statement, he repudiated that and said, no, absolutely not. We are not going to agree to an armistice to rescue people in the water. Those are simply the fortunes of war. And he issued an order afterward, known ever after as the Laconia Order, that no German U-boat was ever to attempt to rescue victims of one of its attacks.
0: And you know what, Professor? There's an additional story to that because in doing my research, I found something even more remarkable, and that's this. You're absolutely right. The Americans also intercepted that message from the German U-boat commander listing his exact position. And what did they do? They launched bombers from a little-known island to attack the sub. and Of course, at, because and, the at, American
2: and, assumption here is that the Germans were using this as a ploy. This was a device. Right. They were going to lure somebody out and then sink them. And given the relationships among the various combatants in what, let's be honest, was a total war, that's not very far-fetched.
0: And that's, let me tell you what happened, though. It's, it's wild. So here's an American plane loaded with bombs, seven crew members— and, as they, and all they knew is there was a German U-boat out there had, had reported his position, and they were ordered to bomb it. So he finds the German U-boat, but as he comes in down from the clouds, he sees what you just described. He sees women and children on the deck of the, of the U-boat and all the other survivors in a string of lifeboats being pulled by the U-boat, and they're all waving hello. And he makes a pass. And next thing you know, a huge debate breaks out inside the bomber. And some wanted to bomb it and some didn't. And they took it to a vote. And the bombers won four to three. And so the pilot circles back around. The German U-boat commander has got his binoculars out. And what does he see? He sees the bomb bay doors open. Of that plane and realizes he's about to be attacked. They used fire axes, as you said, to cut the ropes to the lifeboats. Put everybody else below that were on the decks and did an emergency dive. And here comes this plane. About I mean, you couldn't miss the sub. It was sitting duck. And as he's trying to dive, the bomber comes over and the and the bombardier is ready to pull the plug to, to to drop the bombs. The navigator, who just couldn't live with his conscience, at the at the last minute pulls up. He was uh, uh, pulls up and the bomb misses by 50 feet. It explodes. They think they got the sub. The sub stayed submerged. And that night, guess what he did? The submarine came back up, reattached the lifeboats again. And, and... We were the ones in researching the story that had to go tell the co-pilot of that plane 45 years later, he was still alive then, that he didn't sink the sub.
2: It's an absolutely remarkable story, and I want to know when Steven Spielberg's going to turn this into a movie.
0: <laughs> well, let's change gears and talk about the movie we're about to do, meaning the 75th anniversary of D-Day and the role that so many so many merchant and commercial passenger ships played in that war.
2: Yeah, the Queen Mary, which is the namesake of the vessel you are riding at the moment, uh, was one of the so-called Queens that carried thousands of Americans over to Britain in preparation for the D-Day landings. They were so valuable because of their speed; they could go at twenty-five knots, sometimes better on a good day, and no submarine could possibly keep up with them. It was impossible even for a submarine to line up for a shot. So the Queens did not have to zigzag; they did not have to go in convoy. They could speed across the ocean and relative safety. Most of the Americans that went to Britain, however, went in the lumbering convoys of transport ships and cargo ships and merchant ships that did have to be convoyed and did have to zigzag, which meant that their crossing would take weeks rather than days. So you if you were going to Britain to get ready for D-Day, you wanted to be in one of the Queens.
0: Exactly. The only thing that the Queens were basically targets of was an aerial attack.
2: Correct. Correct. But by 1943 and certainly by 1944, that threat was pretty much eliminated. The Germans in '42 and early '43 had these long-range Condor aircraft that were a threat to uh, transatlantic shipping, uh, if not as a direct attack, then to give information to the U-boats that could lie in wait for them. But by '44, in particular, that aerial threat had been all but eliminated.
0: And of course, if you go back to the traditional colors of the Cunard ships, the red and the black, during World War II, they were camouflaged, weren't
2: they? Yes, they were. They were modified in a lot of ways. You know, pre-war, the Queens would carry, oh, maybe 2,000 passengers with a crew of 1,000. So you've got uh, a lot of special TLC for the embarked passengers. But in the crossings with troop ships, they might carry Fifteen to twenty thousand men, and you can imagine what that would be like, crammed into a ship designed to carry two thousand, and now carrying twenty thousand. They were sleeping on the deck. They were sleeping in the holes. They were stacked in hammocks, six high rooms that had been designed for two would would hold twenty. In fact, they were hot bunking, which is a phrase that simply oh, means. Oh, I know that. Oh yeah, one one soldier would get it for twelve hours, then he'd have to vacate for somebody else to have it for twelve hours, and so it went. For the rest of the crossing. And these are soldiers, many of whom are from, you know, the corn-producing states in the Midwest, had never seen the ocean. Many of them were horribly seasick, even though it's a very large vessel. And so in a crowded ship with seasick soldiers, not a happy place to be.
0: Wow. And this went on... Throughout the war?
2: Pretty much, yeah. The Americans began sending uh, troops as far as Iceland early in 1942. The buildup for Britain began in the middle of 1943 and lasted for the next year, right up until D-Day.
0: Did any Cunard ships participate in D-Day itself?
2: Uh, Actually, no. For the landings themselves, very specialized ships had to carry them directly across the channel from Portsmouth and Plymouth, and really from a, a, a score or more of British and Scottish ports. Uh, so that using a full-size liner uh, would not have been practical.
0: All right, but they're the ones that got them at least to the point where they could get there.
2: Yes, they're the ones that carried them uh, to Britain, along with many other ships as well. As I say, those who were in the Queens were probably the lucky ones, since they had a a swifter and a safer crossing than those in the lumbering transport ships.
0: I mean, in a world where everybody wants an upgrade, they want to get promoted or upgraded to first class, it would be interesting to figure out what the pecking order was on those transatlantic crossings.
2: Well, there there really was no, no berth was first class, I can assure you of that. Uh, Every, every horizontal space was occupied at any given moment on those vessels. There would be an American trying to catch 40 winks lying on, they emptied the swimming pool and lay in the bottom of the pool, they lay all over the decks, they lay in the passageways, wherever there was room, they were as crowded as they could possibly be. So the idea of first class would be a place where you could lie down without having somebody lie down on top of you.
0: Sort of like modern jet travel today. There you go. <laughs> but speaking of Cunard ships in other war areas, of course, I remember so well the Falklands War and how they pressed the QE2 into service.
2: Right. Uh, in in wartime... Uh fast, commodious vessels are at a premium. And in fact, in World War II, the most important logistical bottleneck in the entire war was a dearth of shipping. We tend to think of Rosie the Riveter who built airplanes or the production of Jeeps and tanks, all of which are important. But the single most important industrial bottleneck was in shipping. And in 1942, the Allies were desperately short of all kinds of shipping, what they could do, landing in North Africa or the islands in the Pacific, and eventually, of course, D-Day. All of that that depended on being able to produce the kinds of specialized shipping LSTs in particular that could deposit tanks and trucks and jeeps as well as men on a defended beach and keep them there and so the production of shipping was critical and that's why the queens were so valuable because they were available, they were fast, they were large, they were commodious so the, the uh, defense departments of both the United States and Britain took over many of the liners that had been used for luxury transport in pre-war days and used them for wartime use.
0: You know, it's interesting when you you mention that because you look at the history of what was going on, you mentioned 1942, in my research, that was the one year where the German U-boats had their largest successes. They were sinking, oh, yeah. they were sinking so much allied shipping, just and people forget, they were sinking allied shipping off the coast of Cape Cod. They were shipping, they were sinking ships in the Caribbean and Bermuda at, at an unbelievable record pace. As much it's one thing to say we were turning out all these liberty ships, they were sinking a lot of ships.
2: Well, you've actually graph this. It's a very interesting uh, phenomenon, and that is that the ships sunk by German U-boats began in 1939, of course, when they were sinking only British ships, and then jumped in 40, again in 41, had a big jump in 42, increased again in 43, then dropped off in 44 and 45. But if you track that graph, next one that shows ships being built in the United States, the number of ships built skyrocketed in 1943. So, that even though 42 was the scariest year because they were sinking ships faster than we could build them, they actually sunk more ships in 43, but the United States built more ships faster than they could sink them. The production of American shipping in 1943 is one of the great heroic stories of the war.
0: I mean, they were producing, going back to look at those documentaries, it's amazing to see how fast those ships were being launched from the shipyards. I mean, one, two a week, maybe three a week from each shipyard.
2: Yeah, more than that. One or two a week from each uh, ship building uh, slip in each shipyard. The record was actually four days, uh, 29 minutes, and 14 seconds. Uh, It was a (laughs) stunt. They worked 24 hours a day under the arc lights, got it out as fast as they could. But the fact that that could be done – I mean it was a publicity stunt, of course. But the fact is that ships could be built – in a month, repeatedly, over and over and over again. And they were.
0: And they were. And, of course, I go back, I wanted to mention the Falklands again, because here comes the QE2, once again camouflaged in the service of Her Majesty, way down south in South America.
2: Right, right.
0: I mean, that was, to me, uh, such a reminder, going back 35, 40 years before for folks who didn't remember it. This is just an opportunity to to relive that history.
2: Yeah, the Falklands War was interesting. It may be the last war where ships that had been built and designed for a peacetime use were converted to wartime use and did so effectively. Uh, Modern warships are so specialized now, it would be difficult to do that.
5: If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information.
1: If you are continuing on with another airline, we
0: really don't care. I am a passenger. On board the ship, 17 veterans from World War II, part of the greatest generation. For those people who remember uh, the Tom Brokaw series and the book, and one of them from Rhode Island, Steve Melanoff, how are you, sir?
6: I'm fine.
0: Mr. Melanoff, you're from Rhode Island, you served in the Army. Where were you in World War II?
6: Where was that, please?
0: Where were you serving in World War II?
6: I served in Europe. I was uh, right at this time. I was in Normandy uh, 74 years ago uh, on the LST, out uh, the Drinkless Channel, ready to go in.
0: So the LST dropped the pl- dropped the gangway and in you went?
6: No, that's not the way they did it. They actually. See, I've seen too many movies. Yeah, you have. Yeah. Probably not. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no uh some some did drop but not 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 early on in D day Early on D day they went in LCBPs their their plywood boats that made up Higgins boat they call and they carried about 30 men and that's where all the started with a few men so you were you start. were
0: you were with one of 30 men that went in uh, uh
6: well i was not on the very very first initial batch right. that went in that's correct but that's what they went on, LCVPs, 30 men in a boat. And they all would assemble, and then he attacked the uh, 116th and 115th and 175th in order.
0: And how long were you on the beach? Uh,
6: I, I was not on the beach very long because uh, we, we were the reserve regiment, and uh, we were underwater, and because they had not <coughs> in, in, pe- penetrated so deeply, we were not allowed to go in until the next morning.
0: Wow, but it was an amazing day. It was. In fact, the movie that, of course, I'm remembering is "The Longest Day." It is. It was. Yeah,
6: yeah. Have Would've you
0: been? Have you been back since?
6: Yes, I have. I've been back. Uh, I started going back on a 60th anniversary, and uh, then I was went on a 65th and a 70th. Then I went on another one with a group uh, of college kids to show them around. And, since, and when you
0: went to take the college kids there, yes, what was the most surprising thing to them?
6: I, I think just to be with a person that, who was there, and I think that's the most educational thing for them because they're hearing it from a guy that was there and, and did the thing. And so it's one thing to read in a book, but when you're there but with a person— To stand
0: there, to stand there where you were and right. to tell that story.
6: Yes, yeah, so you do. So that is the most important thing. Yes, I, I think so.
0: What's the one thing that you remember more than anything else about that experience?
6: Let me say this. War is hell. And I was in the infantry. I was in the 29th Division. We went to hit the Beach in Omaha. They on the left and us on the right. And what I remember and what I like to emphasize, yes, we did have a D-Day, but we also had 360 days of war. And so uh, I was there for about 335 of them. I was there for eleven months, and so uh, I try to emphasize. There's more than just a D-Day because uh, we had that constant push afterwards, and uh, the Twenty-Ninth Division was there, and we we fought all the way through uh, Normandy, then France, and then Belgium and Holland, and then across Germany, and we are there when we we got to the Elbe River and beat the Russians to the Elbe River.
0: And that was a race.
6: Yes, it was, especially at the end, because. Uh, we wanted to see who hit there first, and that was where politically they told us we had to stop. And I'll tell you something that many people do not know, and I didn't find out until not too many years ago. When we got to the Elbe River, the 175th Regiment had a visitor from the German side, and they wanted to talk to a general. And we told them we didn't have a general, so we did have a colonel. They talked to us, and we had a whole rocket division that surrendered 10,000 strong to the 175th Regiment. Just kept a secret because the Russians would have very upset and they found out that we got all that knowledge and experience
0: of course, but here's a stupid, silly question: when ten thousand troops surrender to you, what do you do with them
6: oh, that's very easy. all we do is as a combat unit, we just process them, we just bring them back, we have other people behind, just like in a in a in a fighting uh division they have people who have a job that they do take a prisoners. We would just bring them back and uh, they would be handed over to uh, a unit that would take care of, just like a unit for dead people, also for live Germans also.
0: And thank God you weren't in the first unit.
6: (laughs) That's correct.
0: What's the one story that you want people to know?
6: I, I, I will tell you, I'd like to tell you one story. What happened to my my unit, if that's okay.
0: Stephen, I have to ask the indelicate question. How old are you?
6: I'm 99 years old. I'll be 100 November 28th. Uh,
0: You don't look it, sir. I know this is radio, but I got to tell you. I heard, by the way, somebody told me on the ship, you're chasing women on this ship.
6: No, that's not true. I wouldn't believe that. (laughs) Yeah,
0: you're laughing, though.
6: (laughs) Yeah, but I'll be dancing tonight if the officer plays.
0: (laughs) I bet you will. (laughs) And you won't be dancing alone? No. Okay, good. Let's go back to the story of your platoon. Okay.
6: Okay, what I'd like to tell you is the story of Hill 108. It's one of many battles that the 29th Division fought. We're talking about many, many battles, tens of tens and maybe hundred, because each... Each village, each town is another battle. And I, I will tell you one thing. Hill went away. On June 15. we were told that we were going to capture, our, our mission was to capture St. Lowe. It was a key tra- a communication center between the Germans from the west to the east by railroad or and and uh, communications uh, of all types. So when we were told this, they were told we would have hedgerow country. And hedgerow country, you'd think it would be a hedge that you'd have to fight. But over the years, the hundreds of years, that hedgerow became a solid... Earth's defensive position that the Germans would use. The other thing I want to mention was the German M42 machine gun. They had a prior machine gun, 39 model. The 42 was a more effective weapon. It fired 1,500 rounds a minute, and that's 25 1, rounds.
0: 1,500 rounds a minute.
6: 1,500 rounds a minute and and that's 25 rounds a second. You cannot make that sound with a voice. sounds like perfect Cavus, okay? That being said, we we, we proceeded on our mission to go through these hedgerows, and we had to fight for every hedgerow that contained a field or an orchard or a pasture, and and every field that we captured, we lost people because they would have a machine gun in a corner of that and that. They we would mow you down, yeah. Yeah, and, and this, we had no protection, and they did. So we couldn't even see the machine gun, because they used smokeless powder, so we just fired at the sound. We progressed very well. I'm talking about uh, the 1st Battalion of the 175th Regiment, 29th Division. First day, we did four miles. We had casualties on almost every field that we... By the way, to
0: do four miles in a day was making progress.
6: It was, because we were actually... They were just fighting a uh, delay in action because they, we were overpowering them, and we found out that the 1st Battalion had, had, had a salient so we were ahead of everybody else. And we proceeded this way, and on, on, on the 16th, as I said, we did four miles. The second day, on the 17th, they decided to resist. They put more into action, Okay. Uh, at about mid-morning, I was an assistant B.R. man. Well, my B.R. man, Arthur Otis, he was killed. He was hit by automatic fire. About an hour or so later, I had to take it over the gun and as we proceeded, maybe advance another few hedgerows, only a few. I was hit. I was shot in the neck. I went down. As I went down, I, I saw my lieutenant just 15 feet to my left and maybe a few feet back. He was taking this fire and you could see this picture of this man just being hit by this ammunition, 35 rounds a second. I thought it was just holding him up. Fire and start, he was gone. I made my way to the aid station, flown back to England for operation, and the company moved on. On the next day, on the 18th, the Germans staged a counterattack. Superior force artillery and uh, heavy guns and... They were at a verge of breaking through. We were running low of ammunition. I was in in England by that time. And the uh, uh, major at that time, Whiteford, would not surrender. He said, we will not surrender. We finally had the uh, wire to the artillery repaired. We threw artillery at them, and we stopped them. This is where we stood. We got within two and a half miles of St. Lowe. It took another whole month before we captured Saint Lo. Wow! In that action, the the uh, first battalion uh, lost three. Uh, I'm sorry, the the regiment lost six hundred men. The battalion lost three hundred men. That's half the men in the battalion we lost in that fight. Wow! And it was for that fight on Hill 108, called Purple Hot Hill, the uh, the uh, battalion received. The Presidential Unit Citation, this is blue badge, everybody 115 can wear now. The French government awarded us the Code de Guerre with Silver Star. It was only one of only five of these awards awarded to the whole division. I talk about this action because this is the kind of action that, that occurred with the 29th Division. I'm sure with the first also. Oh, sure. They had a different objective. Now,
0: I'm noticing, sir, that on your lapel, am I seeing a Purple Heart?
6: Yes, you do. I have two Purple Hearts. So uh, What do you mean,
0: yeah? That's a, that's a big deal.
6: <laughs> well, it happens. It's, it's easy to happen when you're in infantry and you're in combat. This happens. That's how, how things happen, yes. Riding along in my automobile
7: My baby beside me at the wheel
5: Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go
0: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com/travelToday to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Meeting so many great veterans here on the ship who are on the ship just for this reason, one of whom, Dennis Trudeau, from uh, well a little town outside of Augusta, Georgia, called Grovetown which uh, prides itself as the biggest city in Columbia County. Absolutely. Because it's the only city in Columbia <laughs> County. You were a jumper, weren't you? Yes, sir. You jumped out of the C47. Yes, sir. You parachuted in into France. Yes. On D-Day. Exactly. Tell me what happened.
8: Well, we landed in France about 1:30 in the morning of June 6th. So it
0: was a night jump?
8: A night jump. Yes, and we had the—I uh, was with the first Canadian Parachute Battalion which was uh, attached to the 6th British Airborne Division.
0: Now, you're jumping out of a C-47. Most of us know that as a DC-3. Yeah. How many people on board?
8: There's about 20 of us. And uh, uh, we, were, we were supposed to land in a particular area in, in uh, what's called a drop zone. Well, uh, they were a little, pilots, I guess, were a little excited, and we didn't quite get to the drop zone. Well, I dropped about seven miles where, uh, from where I was supposed to drop.
0: Which meant you were not in the right place and definitely at the wrong time.
8: Exactly. Exactly.
0: And what happened? Well, You you landed? We landed. Got your chute taken care of?
8: uh, Yeah, I landed in water about up to my waist, and uh, there was no one else around. I don't know what happened to the rest of the stick. I didn't see another parachute or nothing.
0: You were by yourself? I was
8: by myself, and I worked my way out of that uh, water to a a little road beside the, the field and started looking. I looked at the airplanes to see what direction I should go to, to our drop zone, our assembly area, and uh, they were flying every direction you could think of. So they were confused too. Yes, they were. Anyway, as I walked along, of, uh, uh, we had more people doing the same thing coming up, and we, we ended up in about 40 minutes after I dropped. We had about 35 or 40 people. Going towards this little town called Veryville. So you
0: did find some of the other guys. Oh
8: yeah, oh yeah. Uh, we uh, we were uh, as we were walking, uh, the Air Force was to bomb the the beaches to create the uh, cr- craters for the people coming in shore. Well, they were a little off course. They bombed us, and uh, not I got, a good thing. I got uh, shrapnel in both my legs and my back but not enough to knock me out. I still could walk a little bit. And uh, we ended up finally getting to our assembly area. And uh,
0: How we, many of the guys who jumped made it to the assembly area?
8: Probably about five of us. That's it? Out of, our, out of our stick.
0: Oh, that's not good.
8: No. Uh, our battalion dropped about 900, and we had, I was told later that we had about 200 that actually made the, the assembly area where we were. Wow. Not a good batting average. No, not very good. Not very good. Anyway, we our mission was to, uh, to uh, destroy bridges, destroy a communication center, and to to secure the drop zone for the remaining part of the division. Well, by the time we got there, the communication center was already blown up. The DZs were 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 uh, uh, kept. They were okay. They were they were secure. But the bridges were still had to be blown. So uh, they grabbed a few of us, and we went towards this one bridge. Uh, we were supposed to blow it up, but the, we didn't. The, uh, for some reason, the people that had the explosives had not reached that area, so we went to our Difficult
0: set. to blow up the bridge without explosives.
8: Exactly. And so we went to the second bridge, and uh, we were sent across the bridge to, to clear, let, clear that end of the bridge while the engineers were to blow up the bridge and their signal was to when the, uh, the, the dynamite and explosives were placed on the bridge and before they blew it, they were going to send us a signal for us to come back across. Well, unfortunately, the signal went up, so did the bridge. <laughs> Uh-oh. And we were left on the wrong side of the road, a river. And that was where I got captured as a
0: prisoner of war. And then for the next almost year, yeah, yeah. you were a prisoner in Germany. In Germany, yeah.
8: Wow. I, uh, I, I was sent to a German hospital in Rennes, France, and uh, they took care of my legs and my back, and I stayed there about about six weeks. But at that time, uh, they moved us to the far side of uh, the city of Rennes, and in that area, there was about maybe another 100 prisoners. And when General Patton broke loose down in Normandy, the Germans took us and put us in boxcars and shipped us back to uh, to Germany. Wow. Uh, so here's my
0: question, Jerry. You're on the cruise now. You're going to Europe. What's the one message you want people to get?
8: A big port what? with
0: What's the one message you want to give to people now?
8: I want to tell them that war is hell. And war is... is We've got to do something to prevent people from fighting each other. I mean, when you see people that were in our plane that flew over there and jumped in, at 1 o'clock in the morning, by 6 o'clock they were dead. That's war, and we were just kids. We, we didn't know really what to do. The, the, guy that jumped, the guy that got hit with a bomb beside when I got hurt, he lost his leg. And he was crying for his mother it, it broke your heart i know
1: hello and welcome to alaska flight 438 we'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft the most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants please look at one now
0: Joining me now from the USS Samuel Chase, and we'll explain that ship in a second, Frank DeVita. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm fine. Okay, good. Tell me about the Samuel Chase, and, and what was your involvement on that ship?
9: I was a gunner's mate. Right here, gunner's mate. I see it. Gunner's mate, third class. By the way, My we gun- don't have
0: enough time to explain all the patches that you're wearing. No, I no, no, to- no.
9: I need another arm. <laughs> but a I was a gunner's mate on the stern of the ship. We had 420 millimeter. Uh, Anti-aircraft guns. that I was in charge of. But during an invasion, I was on a boat. One of the boats. We had 21 boats all together.
0: And what kind of boats?
9: Uh, Higgins boats. Oh,
0: the Higgins boats again. The Higgins
9: boats. Yeah, actually, they were made out of plywood.
0: The, well, I, the, were these the same boats that ended up being uh, like the PT boats too? Because, no. Because those were the Huckins boats, right? Those were those. Hig- are, Higgins boats. Higgins boats. Got it. Yeah.
9: They're made out of plywood and they gas could, engines. Uh, diesel engine. Too, okay. Too, Two diesel engines, yeah. and they carried between 30 and 32 men. And the only uh, metal that we had aboard ship was the bow. And my job, my original job, there was supposed to be two machine guns on every boat, 30 caliber machine guns. Some, and that was your that was your gun. So, no, I was the 20 millimeter ah. anti aircraft gun. But on the little boats, they had these 30 30 caliber machine guns. Some idiot in Washington decided to take the guns off the boats because they said they were afraid of friendly fire. Well, there was no friendly fire. The only fire was from the Germans, and they weren't very friendly. So
0: you couldn't even fire back.
9: So they... Can I use a, a swear word? No. I can't? No, okay. you can't. All right.
0: But we get the idea.
9: But I went in, you know, un- unprepared, and I didn't have my guns. So the next job they gave me was to drop the ramp. In in the front of the boat, there's a big ramp made out of steel, two to three inches steel, and they could repel a machine gun, or rifle fire. When it was up. When it was up, yeah. So my job was when the coxswain said, drop the ramp, I had to drop the ramp. So the first time he said to me, drop the ramp, I never heard him, I'll be honest with you, because the roar of the guns and the two big diesel engines behind me, I never heard him. So the second time he screamed, Mm -hmm. drop the ramp, and I actually froze. And the reason I froze, I was a young kid, and I wanted to live another day, because I knew when I dropped that ramp-
0: You were not protected.
9: The machine gun boats that were hitting the ramp would come in and probably kill all of us on the boat. So I didn't drop the ramp. Then he screamed again, he says, God damn, Davida, drop the effing ramp. And I had no choice. I dropped the ramp, and out of 32 men, three men got on the beach. Wow. And, and they were cut down immediately. They were. They were machine gunned immediately.
0: And, and you were on the boat?
9: I, I was on the boat. And the uh, the machine gun cut down the first 14 or 15 guys in the front of the boat. They went down like you're cutting wheat with a sigh. Wow. They were all gone. So I had a little protection because the troops in front of me were my protection. In basketball, there's something called a pick where oh, yeah. one guy protects another guy. And these guys in front of me, they were actually my protection because they were absorbing the bullets of course. that would come to me. So I had, a, I had a little safety. I had a little safety. But I, I told the story before. I'm going to tell it again, but it gets me very emotional. I understand. We had two boys near me two soldiers, and they thought by being close to me, they would be protected. But actually, what they were doing, they were drawing fire from the hill onto me. So I really didn't want them close to me, but I had no choice. So the the machine gun up on the hill, not not the 35 on the beach, but the machine gun on the hill, opened fire.
0: And they had a straight shot.
9: And he cut cut him across the the, the belly, and he, he went down. But somehow this guy with an open belly, machine gun bullets inside him, he survived. Really? He survived, I don't know how, it had. he must have God on his mother after him. And then there was another kid, a little redheaded kid, I'll never forget, he had red hair. And the machine gun came in and took his helmet off, at part of his head. Wow. The right side of his head came off. And he was screaming, help me, help me, help me, help me. I couldn't even help myself.
0: What What are you doing on this ship right now? What brought you back on
9: this ship? What brought me back on this yeah. ship? I belong to this called the Greatest Generation, which really has nothing to do with Tom Broker, by the way. <laughs>
0: I'll tell him that when I see him. No, it is. I know.
9: Because this is the Greatest Generations with an S at the end of it. Because it, contain, it goes Vietnam, Korea. And World Europe, War II, yeah. And World War II. Yeah. But the greatest generation, Tom Brokaw, was all World War II. Correct.
0: But what brought you back on the ship?
9: (laughs) I got a free ride.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love the honesty. Uh I'll see you on the buffet line. Uh Yeah. Yeah.
9: Yeah. But I, I was here last year on the ship last year also.
0: But you came back because, yeah, because you still want because you want to I tell that I want to be st- with the veterans? And you want to tell those stories.
9: There's 17 veterans here, and some of them are my age, some of them are a little older. I don't think there's anybody. I'm probably the youngest. How old are you? I'm 94. You're the youngest. I think so. Wow. I think so. Yeah. Because I was only 18 years old when I went in, and I was 3 weeks 19, my 19th birthday.
0: What people don't realize, even today when we have wars in Afghanistan or in Iraq or anywhere in the, any theater around the world, is most of the men and women serving in those areas, it's truly their first time they've ever left the United States. That was your first trip overseas, it I'm sure. Mine,
9: mine too, yeah.
0: Yeah. Until, I mean, a hell of a way to see the world.
9: Until that day, I had never seen only my grandmother in the living room. They used to put them in the living room. They didn't have funeral pauses on that day. That was the only person I ever saw dead. And now I saw hundreds of dead, hundreds and hundreds of dead It's very hard
0: it is, but the stories that you tell now, what are you hoping to to for people to understand uh, you know there's a very very famous quote that I'm sure you may have heard yeah, before yeah. that those who cannot remember the past yeah. are doomed to repeat it that's right, yeah, right yeah, yeah. so what is the story you hope to share
9: i, I want I, for seventy years. I never talked about it. When I did the Tom Brokaw interview, that was the first time I talked to it, for 70 years. I didn't want to bring the war home to my wife and my children, my family, because they were so pristine, so clean, and so lovable. I didn't want to bring my dirt back to them. You but held it because, in all those years? Uh, 70 years. But now, since I've talked to Tom Brokaw, and you know, the bubble burst, so to speak, I got it out of my conscience. Now I want to talk about it. I go to Columbine High School. I've been there four or five times. And I talk to the graduating class. And I go to France, and I go to... The what, did, st- what did
0: you tell the graduating class of Columbine?
9: I told them my story. I tell them my story.
0: And the lesson that you want them to learn?
9: Yeah. And these kids, they, they, you know, they, they have a history teacher who happens to be great. And he talks to them about Normandy, and he talks about me. So when I get there, I'm sort of a year for of them. And I told them, they ask wonderful questions. Except one kid asked me the question, were you killed during the war?
0: Were you killed during yeah, the war?
9: and I said, I don't think so. <laughs> but probably what he meant to say, were, were you, you wound, injured? Were yeah. you wounded during yeah. the war, but I had to rescue him.
0: But I think it's interesting that you actually would go to Columbine, and, considering what they went through, yeah. and to tell your story.
8: Yeah.
9: You know, Columbine was not the first school. The first school was in Brooklyn, 1942. Did you know that? No. The first school shooting was in Brooklyn, 1942. Two kids died. A lot of people don't know that. I didn't know
0: that. Yeah. Amazing. So now you're going over again. You're I'm, go-
9: I'm you- going over again, and I'm bringing 75 people with me. Family, friends, neighbors. I could bring 200 because everybody wants to come. And I'm, I'm quite honored, I'll be honest with you. The 75 people, they could take their vacation and go to the islands or something. And they're giving up their vacation, and they're coming with me. It's quite an honor.
0: Absolutely, it's quite an honor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it's quite an honor to talk to you. Thank you. I mean it. What are you going to tell them when you get there?
9: Well, I hope they're seeing some of these interviews that I do, because I haven't told them anything about the war or anything like that. They're going to have to learn through my these interviews what actually happened, because I never told them.
0: So this will be a first time for them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What's the one question that you can't answer?
9: That I can't answer?
0: About your experience there.
9: I get very emotional when I talk about the kids who died. You know, they were 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. They were too young to drink. They couldn't vote because you had to be 21.
0: That was you too.
9: Yeah, but they weren't too young to die. They weren't too young to die.
0: I know, amazing. And, I mean, there but for for the grace of God, it was you too.
9: Yeah, I, I would say probably... 10,000 bullets to by me. Machine gun bullets. On my left and my right, the guy on my right went down. The guy on my left went down. Why did they miss me?
0: So you could tell the story.
9: Was God watching over me? It missed Was you. my mother watching over me? Come fly with
0: me.
2: Let's fly. Let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay.
0: Most importantly, when you think about D-Day and you think about ocean liners, one name comes to mind immediately. We talked about it a little bit earlier on the show. Uh, It's actually still one of the largest visitor attractions in Southern California, if not in Long Beach, California itself. Hard to believe it's actually been in Long Beach for, I think, 50 years. And that's, of course, the Queen Mary. And joining me on board is the, the Commodore of the Queen Mary, Everett Horde. Nice to have you back on the show, sir.
3: Oh, Peter, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me along.
0: I mean, it's hard to believe, first of all, that the Queen Mary's been in Long Beach for over 50 years. It's even harder for many people to fathom the role that it played in World War II.
3: Well, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right about that, Peter. I mean, the Queen Mary was a significant part of the movement of troops in the Second World War. She would shoulder some 810,000 troops um, mostly across the North Atlantic for the build up of the invasion of Normandy. And as a matter of fact, that ship still holds the world's record for carrying more human beings on a single ocean crossing than any ship in history. And she left New York bound for Guruk in Scotland in July of 1943 with 16,683 souls on board.
0: Wow. That's a long line for the for the cafeteria.
3: Yeah. Yes, sir. It was. It was indeed. Um, And of course, you know, that's interesting. You bring that up. Um, providing food for all those troops on board at one time was something of a, of a minor miracle. Um, they would uh, jet steam up from the boiler rooms and boil eggs in 55-gallon drums a thousand at a time. Uh, meat slicers worked 24 hours a day to keep up with the, uh, the supply of uh, sliced meats. So, and many of those GIs had never seen the sea before, much less been crammed in a giant ship like the Queen Mary and carried across the stormy North Atlantic. Well, so many you, were put, of those... you,
0: you, you were put in the position of a seriously discount cruise. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
3: yes, indeed. <laughs>
0: but you benefited from the fact that you could make very good speed, uh, you could outrun the U-boats, and you delivered everybody on time.
3: That's so true, uh, Peter. The Queen Mary held the schedule. Um, She was fast enough to outrun the U-boats, and in the early part of the war, I think she might have been faster than some of the torpedoes. And although she carried a 4-inch cannon on the stern and 72 anti-aircraft guns, uh, the ship uh, was never fired upon, and those guns were never fired in anger, only practice. And she did run alone across the submarine-infested oceans at full speed, zigzagging as she went, blacked out radio silence, um, fair weather and foul, fog and clear.
0: Amazing, and many, many runs. And, and I mean, with with. And by the way, the you know, on this ship that's sailing to to France that we're on right now, the Queen Mary Two, we have a number of World War Two veterans taking the trip. I wonder how many World War Two veterans have visited the Queen Mary.
3: Well, I've been hanging around the Queen Mary thirty-eight years, Peter, and I can tell you that literally thousands and thousands of World War II veterans have come home to the Queen Mary over the years. And of course, nowadays, not so many as that portal of time, as we know, must come to a close, as for all of us. But but still, uh, not long ago, actually on the 4th of April, I had a visitor spend his 100th birthday uh, with his family on the Queen Mary. And he was on the voyage that we call the Long Voyage, or the Voyage of 40 Days and 40 night, which is where the Queen Mary left Boston, bound for Sydney. And uh, we call it Key West, Rio de Janeiro, Cape Town, uh, Bombay, Singapore, and eventually uh, to Sydney. And it's the longest voyage the Queen Mary would ever make.
0: Wow. But also, I'm assuming you've had visitors who were part of that 16,000 member uh, transatlantic crossing.
3: Yes, we have. Uh, We certainly have, Peter. And it was uh, to hear their story about sleeping in their bunk for eight hours. Some of them were even housed in the swimming pool um, because a floor had been put over the tank itself. And the bunks went up to the ceiling in there, and they were crammed in there. They called it hot bunking. They got the bunk for eight hours, and they had to give it up to one of their mates and go and sleep somewhere in an alleyway or on deck. Um, there just simply wasn't enough accommodation for all of the human cargo.
0: When I think about how many people that is, how, how much they were crammed in, it's amazing you didn't have any onboard fights.
3: Well, I'm sure there probably were. I know that <laughs> a few GIs that, that I've interviewed over the years said, well, it was a floating crap game all the way across.
0: <laughs> oh, well, those kind of fights, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> when people come but, and visit the Queen Mary now, whether they they were ever on board to begin with or not, what's the biggest surprise for
3: them? Well, the biggest surprise for them, and I think, and, you know, there, there are several different types of dynamic and age groups that visit the ship. Um, you know, people that are my age, which, you know, I'm almost 60, they come, you know, with the expectation of a beautiful history and what the ship did in fair weather and foul when she was the very fashion of the North Atlantic. Um, the younger crowd, the millennial crowd, well, they are intrigued by the Queen Mary's paranormal aspect. And, you know, the, the Queen Mary is haunted and is purported to have been for all these years. And I feel like she probably is. And um, uh, the younger crowd come with uh, some sort of uh, intrigue about that history of that side of her life. And when they get there, the biggest surprise. Price for them is that yes, they come looking for their paranormal experience. Some have it, some don't. But they find what a magnificent and beautiful history that the ship has, and what a price that the ship and the men who crossed in that ship during the Second World War paid for the pursuit of peace and freedom.
0: How long did the Queen Mary serve
3: in active service? Uh, the Queen Mary was in active service from May of 1936 to December of 1967, almost 31 years. Now, for I
0: should tell you, in cruise ship genealogy or lifespan, that's way beyond normal life service. Normally, today, a new cruise ship that comes online will be will stay in the fleet of one particular line for maybe 12 years, and then it'll be sold off to another cruise line and to another cruise line. But it's unusual for 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 a cruise ship to be around for more than 30 years.
3: Absolutely. It sure is, Peter. And, you know, that's that's what's so remarkable about the Queen Mary is that born from the ashes of the Great Depression, she became a symbol of Britain's recovery from the Depression, a symbol of maritime might, the fastest ship in the world for 14 years, and perhaps the most loved passenger ship of all time. I mean, considering that we have some very fine ships in service today, including especially the one that uh, you're sailing in today, which I have a, a, a great fondness for. But certainly from the last century, the Queen Mary, I think, uh, was the torchbearer of uh, of Cunard and, and uh, passenger ships in general.
0: Now, you talk about the speed record. We all know that the, 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 the still-standing speed record is from the SS United States. Uh, at one point, the SS United States a speed was considered classified because it was also used as a military ship at one point. But what was the speed of the Queen Mary?
3: Well, the Queen Mary was designed for a a 28-and-a-half-knot crossing. That's what they needed to maintain their schedule. On the sea trials, though, uh, in the Firth of Clyde in March of 1936, the ship attained a dazzling 32-point, I think it was 32 knots. Um, And uh, I've interviewed several of the captains before they passed on, And all agree that the Queen Mary was capable of speeds up to 34 knots.
0: Wow. Now, considering the size of the ship, the weight of the ship, otherwise known as its displacement, moving a piece of metal that size in the water at that speed is nothing short of remarkable.
3: And considering that it was created before even the advent of a calculator to do their figures on. Those men that and women that designed the Queen Mary and built her, well, they they use their minds and their hands upon the drafting tools. Going onto the paper, I, I kind of feel, you know, I'm a romantic when it comes to ships, but that's how the soul of the ship starts, I think.
0: You know, I, I think you're right. And almost all the aspects of that ship, all the areas of that ship are still open to the public today, right?
3: Yes, sir. All right.
1: Be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from
3: the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay
5: your flight attendant $75.63.
0: Joining me now, the hotel manager for the Queen Mary 2, David Shepard, David. This is a different sensibility when you're on a ship like this because most people listening to the show have, have taken a cruise, if they've done a cruise at all, and they're doing one port every two days or one port every day, maybe one day at sea. But doing a transatlantic voyage is, to me, a very special thing because it's not a cruise, it's a crossing.
7: Absolutely, it is. It's uh, seven days of pure relaxation. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it certainly beats jet lag. And uh, our, our guests uh, love just having that freedom to travel, freedom to escape from you know, the everyday uh, chores of, of, of general life. And it's, it's, they can be as busy as they want to be. They can be as quiet as they want to be. They can choose what they want to do. And well, there
0: are two time. things that happen on a crossing. Uh, and, and it's going to sound so obvious when I tell you, and you know this already, but you get a chance to think. And you get a chance to have conversations i mean that that's the lost art because here you are why not talk to somebody
7: absolutely and uh as i say every day is different it doesn't matter what's going on outside it's all about what's going on inside uh queen mary 2 was was designed and built across the north atlantic in foul and fair weather, and it's all about what's happening inside the ship. So we have a whole array of different insight lectures going on, whether you're learning to ballroom dance, whether you're attending afternoon tea every I've always
0: wanted to learn how to ballroom dance.
7: Absolutely. Well, we we have a. I, I lied. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have our dance hosts on board. We have our international uh, dance hosts on board. Uh, we have a whole array of, of different uh, selections of music. Thirty three musicians we have on board. And you're responsible for how many guests? Uh, two and a half thousand guests, and there's one thousand crew that work in the hotel on
0: board. Wow, that's a lot of beds to change every day.
7: It's a lot of beds, absolutely.
0: And when your staff does the, this is the most amazing part to me. And uh, by the way, I, I apply this to hotels as well. The maids teach you everything. Housekeeping teaches you everything you want to know about your life if you actually spend time with them. I mean, I know how to. I know how to make a bed now. I never knew how to, until I watched them make beds. <laughs> Right? Because yep. they have to do it in record time.
7: Uh, we Well, we turn the ship um, every seven days. So uh, through through New York, we'll have in-transit guests probably three to 400. And through the UK, we may have one to 200 guests. So we're, we're turning well over 2,000 people uh, every week over. Uh, we arrive at 6.30 in uh, Brooklyn, and we're sailing again at half past four in the afternoon. So we have a very tight window to turn the ship. Uh, disembarkation's complete by 10.30, 11, and we're embarking our new guests from noon. So, yes, it's a tight uh, you don't a lot of time not a lot of time at all but we achieve it
0: and that is also provisioning the ship
7: we uh, we provision uh, mainly in the UK in Southampton so we'll take on around uh, anything from 200 to 300 tons of uh, food uh, every couple of weeks and then we'll top up in New York with uh, fresh fresh food and beer and beer. Absolutely. You can't forget the beer. <laughs> absolutely.
0: You've been doing this for seven years on this ship.
7: Seven years on Queen Mary 2, yes. Wow. What's changed? We went through a huge remastering in 2016. Um, so we had a major refurbishment of Queen Mary 2. We put on an additional uh, 50 staterooms. So right at the very top of the ship, we put a block of 35 staterooms up on uh, on there. And we also introduced some of our single uh, occupancy staterooms. So that's, a, 15, that's a new trend. 15 single uh, occupancy staterooms, which are really popular. No
0: kidding. I mean, the biggest complaint I've been getting for the last 20 years from passengers is the dreaded single supplement on cruise ships.
7: Absolutely, uh, these are very popular and they do sell out very, very quickly. Moving forward, you know, it's it's a thing of the future uh, for for Cunard to consider with our new ship in 22. We also increased our kennels as well. So we're okay, I, I knew we were going to get to that. How yeah. many? Okay, how
0: many pets are we taking today?
7: So we will have 24 dogs sailing from uh, New York <laughs> back to Southampton. <laughs>
0: And do the dogs get walked?
7: The dogs do get walked, yeah. They have their relaxation time upstairs. They have their special doggy cookies that we bake for them every day. And uh, it always amuses me when we see the food order from the kennels, and you've got chicken thighs, chicken wings, chicken legs, smoked salmon, poached salmon, fillet steak, New York strip. You have everything. Okay, so
0: basically what you're telling me, David, is my life should be coming back in in another lifetime as a dog on this ship.
7: Absolutely. Treated very well.
0: Wow. And you have dog walkers?
7: Uh, we have two uh, kennel masters that look after the dogs. I love uh, it. Kennel masters. Absolutely.
0: As, as opposed to the kennel apprentice. Yes. Yes. Wow. We have two and masters. how many can you take on a ship? Uh, 24. So uh, you're, we have you're 20, full today.
7: We have 24 uh, kennels. So uh, Now, in
0: the old days in England, you had quarantine problems. Yes. Have they, have they fixed that now?
7: Well, they, they all come with their vaccinations and their pet passports. So we have that special license between New York and uh, the UK and on to Hamburg. So we're only allowed to carry our pets Uh, between new york southampton and hamburg and that's it and that's it
0: get the dogs off
7: absolutely (laughs) they they leave us and then they rejoin us and then come back home
0: just another question if you have a dog on the ship are you allowed to spend time with the dog
7: i go up to the kennels most days i love dogs not Uh, you but i mean if you're a passenger oh if if you're a passenger yeah yeah yeah. the uh, kennels are open uh, on a daily basis several times throughout the day but no Um, no dogs in the cabins no dogs in the cabins no the dogs remain in the kennels. They're looked after by the kennel masters, and then we have our, our visiting hours for our, for our guests to spend time with their dogs.
0: And you know, one of the things that you know, beyond just the solo cabins, you had to reorient your activities on board too over the last seven years.
7: We we have a huge, expansive daytime program. We have our Insight lecture program. We also carry various uh, celebrities uh, across as our celebrity speakers, so of uh, recent times we've had Alan Cumming, actor, and uh, Keegan-Michael Key uh, also travel with us in in the last couple of months.
0: The namesake of this ship, the Queen Mary, was a troop transport, and in fact, uh, earlier in the show we talked to the Commodore out in Long Beach, hard to believe that ship's been out there for 52 years. Yeah, it's quite
7: unbelievable.
0: I mean, just moored out there, but the history of that ship, it still holds the record. This is the most amazing thing, it still holds the record for the most number of people ever Carried on a ship, you know what the number was
7: uh 10 to 15,000. It was you're
0: low over 16,000. Over really? 16,000, you were close. Can you imagine? They were sleeping on bunks in the swimming pool, it was unbelievable. Uh, things are crazy, but that was that was a ship that one of the reasons why they used that ship it was so fast it could outrun the U boats, so they, they couldn't catch them, so it didn't go on a convoy, it just went on its own. That's right, amazing, and of course. The QE2, I remember during the days of the Falkland War, it was recommissioned by, or or basically seized by the military to be used as a troop tra- uh, transport down in the, in the Falkland Islands. What have you done in terms of you? You mentioned adding the solo cabins, but what have you done in terms of the cabins themselves? In terms of people, don't change their lifestyle when they change their location. You fig- you've probably figured that out. Everybody wants to be connected. They want their Wi-Fi. They want their internet. They want to, they want to be able to be connected. Just have the option of it, right?
7: Yeah, absolutely. And technology moves on. Uh, so we have to move on with, with what we offer to our guests. So our internet speed is, is always being upgraded. In fact, we're going through a, a, an upgrade uh, in the next month or so. So we'll have more fast and more reliable networks. So people do want to be connected when they're on board. But you also have a large percentage of people that want to escape from that everyday life. They want to just feel free. They want to have that freedom to travel. They want to feel free, time to relax. So you've e- equally got people who want to escape from the everyday life you
0: know what I call that JOMO you know what that stands for no. the joy of missing out
7: absolutely well I, I'd, I'd enjoy that if I was on holiday
0: <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about your veterans on board that's going to be some special moments
7: we did this uh three three years ago it was our first crossing with the veterans and I was here for that and it was an extremely special week um, and from the success of that, we've built on that uh, year after year. So we're very excited today to welcoming 17. And I think uh, three years ago, I think we were about six or eight veterans, and we've now got 17 coming on board. Um, so we're really excited. It's an extremely popular uh, event and uh, theme crossing uh, for, for our guests. And uh, every morning in our Royal Court Theatre, which will seat around 1,100 people, I can guarantee that room will be standing room only now for the next week listening to these uh, stories.
0: And, you know, so much of what I do, if I'm successful, is storytelling. Yes. And that's history alive. It's it's really alive. And, you know, what's, what's amazing to me is that we still even have veterans who are still alive to tell those stories.
7: I know the oldest veteran joining us today is 99, 99 years old. So, uh, as I say, we're really uh, proud and very privileged to uh, be in the company of uh, 17 great men.
0: And... Give me the itinerary for this particular cruise.
7: Back to Southampton, and then back to New York. So it's our seven days crossing over to Southampton.
0: And telling the stories of World War II.
7: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: On the same run, by the way, that the Queen Mary used to do during the war.
7: It is indeed, it is indeed. So it's a really exciting week ahead.
0: What's your biggest challenge?
7: People. People are always a challenge. So I have 2,500 guests to make sure we're delivering a a memorable and special time. Uh, I have 1,000 crew to look after, looking after their well-being and welfare, making sure that they're happy in their workplace and and staying in touch with their uh, family and friends as well. So people are always the biggest challenge, but generally we we deliver very uh, special moments on board. And uh, all of our guests leave us with a big smile on their face, and uh, look forward to returning.
0: What's the craziest request you've ever gotten?
7: Oh, crazy! Lots of crazy. Cra- give, me, crazy give me one. Requests. Oh well, we're all about discretion, so I never. I'm not, dive, never I'm not asking for <laughs> names. I'm not asking for names. What have we got? Um, I can't think off the top of my head. There's so many different requests we get. But as I say, there's not a lot that we cannot uh, deliver to our guests. But we we are all about discretion, so we do have a lot of requests. Um, but uh, people travel travel with us for for that very reason, for being very discreet and meeting uh, some of the demands that we get asked for.
0: And you have a lot of repeat guests.
7: We have a lot of repeat guests, and we're also attracting a lot of uh, new guests, which is great as well. A lot of North American guests, uh, which is great to see, and we maintain our international demographic. Um, So leaving today, we'll have 1,100 Americans on board, 900 British, and then we have a good selection of Australian and French and German and around 33 different nationalities.
0: Wow. And how many languages are spoken on the ship?
7: Uh, we, uh, will be English and then we will do, uh, a French and a German noonday broadcast. One of the things that always
0: fascinates me about a crossing as opposed to a cruise ship is that you have an opportunity, I I hate to say it, to do nothing. You have an opportunity to totally just hang out for five days and just think. It's just amazing. But that's not my next guest job. Her next job is to entertain me. She's actually the entertainment director of The Queen Mary 2, Catherine Kennedy, which is a great name, too.
4: Thank you. Yeah.
0: Now, you really started uh, on other ships before you got here.
4: Yeah, so I started on P&O cruises when I was 19. I came to sea just before I started university, and I was looking after the children. So you were
0: an onboard nanny, just about. Yeah,
4: basically, yeah. So providing a lot of entertainment, but it was for a lot younger people than I am at the moment.
0: So now you're dealing with older children.
4: Sometimes, yeah, but mostly, uh, mostly it's great fun.
0: So how do you actually schedule, orchestrate, anticipate entertainment for five days that is going to have two things one to keep me entertained of course but also to give me enough time to breathe
4: yeah well we always say here on board we want all of our guests to tailor make their own holidays so you can do just as much or as little as you please while you're on board um variety is the key because we have a wide demographic lots of different guests of lots of different nationalities and lots of different ages Uh, so So at any
0: given time you may have somebody who just wants to talk about British history somebody who wants to talk about the next American movie or or the Germans want to run around the ship
4: exactly and that is why variety is absolutely key Um, so we have a wide range of events that go on throughout the day and of course throughout the evening as well and uh, everyone that comes on board all of our entertainment is booked by our head office in Southampton Um, uh, and then they send me all of that information, and I put together a program of events that will last for the week while our guests are on board for that transatlantic crossing.
0: Well, you know, when I talk to chefs, I always ask them the same question. I'll, I'll reformulate that for you. I always ask the chefs, what's the one thing you put on your menu that you thought everybody's going to like, and it just tanked? And what's the one thing that you thought, no one's going to order this, and you couldn't get enough of it because everybody wanted? I'll do the same thing for entertainment for you. What's the one show you put on the show the ship that you thought, everybody's going to love this, and people went, what is that? versus something that you feel really, they want this and they love it?
4: It's a great question, really. Um, it's quite a difficult one because our entertainment is really tried and tested. And I've never experienced anything that we've put on the ship and it's tanked. Uh, entertainment is By the way, if subjective. you're on a ship and you want
0: to walk out of the show, you don't have far
4: to go. No, really? exactly. And there's plenty more to choose from if you right. do walk out of the show. Um, but... Everything is subjective when it comes to entertainment. Not everyone likes the same thing, and that's where we go for variety. I think. Uh, then what's the most popular? Again, it entirely depends. We have our own Royal Court Theatre Company on board, our singers and dancers. So well, let for- me let
0: me back up for a second. I remember going on cruises twenty years ago, where they had a juggler. Yep. Um, didn't really work well when the seas were rough.
4: <laughs> well, we have comedy jugglers that come on board and go juggling sharp knives on ten feet unicorn, uh, ten feet high unicycles, and uh, they can while the ship's in, at sea. While the ship's at sea, yeah. And I've known. I'd it go see done, that show. <laughs> it's been done from in a pretty distance. rough conditions. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are just spectacularly professional. That they know how it works. They've done ships for so many years that they can get on their unicycle and not worry that their sharp knives are going to go anywhere where they shouldn't be.
0: That's a little scary.
4: It's a little. Scary scary but they're great they're fantastic wow yeah
0: okay Uh, that's what I wasn't expecting because I never think there are any jugglers left but there are
4: there are variety variety is key and that's one thing that we have in the Royal Court Magicians yep magicians singers vocalists instrumentalists comedians you name it we've got it variety is the spice of life uh in london there's karaoke a, we do have karaoke oh, we like to call it sometimes yes, you know what <laughs> yeah. i'm right there
0: with you yeah <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah well i always ask the guests on stage whether they uh, they dread or or fills them with excitement for karaoke and most of them say that they dread it but you go down to the golden lion pub in the evening and i can assure you they will be singing their hearts out
0: and the favorite most ridiculous song
4: We have everything. New York, and I did it my way. New York, New York, and on my way is very, very popular. Uh, Our social host does a great rendition of all of the different characters from The Wizard of Oz, so that's always one that's worth a watch.
0: (laughs) What's your biggest challenge?
4: Many things on board, to be honest, are challenging that that you wouldn't get in theatres on land. Uh, the weather is one of them, because you can never guarantee what the weather's gonna be like. And we have incredible singers and dancers that really can sing and dance in some very rough seas. So
0: you're trying to tell me you have all-weather singers and dancers?
4: Well, occasionally there are times where we just cannot put them on the stage, where sometimes it just really is too rough for the safety of our performers. And then, of course, you're switching things around, because you cannot have a dark night in the theatre. These guests need to be entertained. Uh, so then it's looking at what else we have on board to be able to fill those slots where we can move the singing and dancing to a matinee one day uh, to make sure that the guests get to see all of the entertainment that we have promised them. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
1: Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's
3: most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad free on Wondry Plus.
1: Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcast starting May 8th. Access episodes early and ad free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts starting May 1st.